Over the years, I've garnered about 10,000 followers on the page. And I've heard it described pretty accurately in a number of ways. I've heard it described as a Mesopotamian mood board, as an Assyrian counterculture, digital arts district of Assyria, really like cool kind of taglines. Oku and Wazer was a Nigerian-born art curator, writer, and poet. He left his home country of Nigeria and settled in New York, taking up poetry and eventually landing an art reviews list of 100 most powerful people of the art world. Living through war and resettlement, he told the New York Times Magazine in 2002, I learned what it means to be the other, even within the rooms of one's own home. Coming from Nigeria, I felt I owed no one an explanation for my existing, nor did I harbor any sign of paralyzing inferiority complex. The Assyrian word for diaspora is totawuta, defined as the act of one who settles in a strange land. Hi everyone, Peter here with you and I'm so happy to be bringing you another episode of the Assyrian podcast. I had a chance to sit down with Nardin Sarkis and Ekadine Yedgar for this week's episode. We spoke about contemporary Assyrian art, Nardin's visit to northern Iraq, and he reveals who's behind the Instagram account that many of you follow, Mesopetrail. And then we bring in Ekadina to talk about their brainchild art exhibition, Diaspora in Bloom. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And here's Nardin and Ekadina. First of all, I want you to open up with who you are, how did you get to where you are, give us a little bit of information on your background, and I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having us on the podcast. I uh, love listening on my drives all the time, so it was exciting to to have the chance to be on it. Sure. Uh, so a little bit about me. I was born and raised here in San Jose, California, which for those that don't know is in South Bay, out in Silicon Valley. So I was born and raised here and went to school out um, at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, when I graduated, I moved back to the Bay Area to work in government relations. So I kind of work in the political side of tech. So where do you currently work now? It's called the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Um, we're a public policy trade association, which is a long way of saying that we represent um, the community quality of life issues that impact tech companies and their employees. And how long have you been there? Um, two years. And what are your day-to-day tasks there? Um, meeting with a lot of elected officials on all the levels. So um, being the face of the organization, meeting with mayors, city councils, um, congressional representatives, and then California state legislators too. Have you ever met our congresswoman on the issue? I have. I've had the pleasure of um, actually volunteering for her campaigns before I started working here. And in this capacity, we work with her quite a bit as well. Here at a Syrian podcast, we like to crowdsource our questions and a lot of these questions they're loaded questions but I feel as though they're loaded for a reason this time around because we're gonna get a lot out of both of you you've been raised in a strong Umtanaya household as well as a Christian one 
Could you talk about your family lineage a bit, as well as the values you were raised with growing up? Sure. Um, wow, that is that is kind of a heavy question to start off with. Let's talk about genealogy. <laughs> um, sure. So that's true. I was raised in a very um, uh, Assyrian household and as well as pretty religious as well. Um, from my mother's side, my grandfather um, is Gashashmul Eshaf, late Gashashmul Eshaf. For those that are from Iran, um, they probably know of him as being the head of all of the Protestant churches in Iran. So not just the Assyrian churches, but all of the Protestant churches um, that were in Iran. He was like the head of them. And he was the pastor of the, the Protestant church that was in Tehran. Um, there it was both evangelical and Presbyterian, okay. St. Thomas. And so he went on to, I guess, mentor um, a handful of pastors that are now like the five or six Protestant pastors here in the Bay Area. They were all kind of his students and mm. went to become pastors in that way. Uh, one of them was my, is my uncle, Gasha um, Freydun Asov. So um, from that side, I was I grew up with a lot of tradition and kind of a microculture, I like to call it. I think that a lot of Assyrians, um, even in Iraq, when I went in for my Gishu trip, a lot of them didn't even know that we have such a big Protestant community. Yeah. Um, so I like to call it, describe it as like a microculture within our culture. But um, I grew up in the kind of evangelical Assyrian subculture, I will say. Um, and from my father's side, less less religiously involved, more cultural. What years, do you do you recall what years your grandfather was active in Tehran? Um, so he was the Gasha of the church that um, was, they call it Umrit Amirabad, because that was the neighborhood that it was in. Um, I believe he was like very active in the, and the main pastor of that church in the 60s and 70s mm. leading up to the revolution. And at what point did your, your grandfather, your family leave? Mm -hmm. So prior to the revolution, the Iranian revolution of 1979, my two uncles, which are his sons, were sent to study in Los Angeles. So they were living in L.A. before the revolution. And then he stayed there through the revolution. A couple years after that, him and his wife, my grandma and my mom all immigrated. It's evident language was strongly emphasized in your household. Because even though you were born in San Jose, at 20-something years old, you're fluent and comfortable speaking in our own mother language. Basima. <laughs> which isn't always common to see. What is your perspective on our language? It might be surprising to some that know me now that I'm very involved in our community, but I definitely grew up with a very tumultuous relationship with our language. I was very expressive and talkative as a kid, kind of like I am still today. But I would often get frustrated because I felt like I couldn't express myself in Assyrian properly. Um, and everyone around me wanted me to speak Assyrian, this language that I felt like inhibited me a little bit. Yeah. But one thing that I really, really respect my parents for is that as much as I was stubborn and responded in English for year, literally for years and years and years and years of my late elementary and middle school life, um, they stuck to it and they would always respond to me in Assyrian. Um, that didn't mean that they cut conversations short. They let me speak whatever I, how I wanted to communicate. But they really emphasized that at home and in these, fo in you know, our family home and in church and in Shotaput and all of these um, communities, we speak our own language. And so they always re responded to me in Assyrian. And I think that was key because I think I really did internalize all of that vocabulary, all of those words. They sent me to Saturday school and all of that. And then one time, one day, I was in high school and I, I kind of just had an epiphany. It was almost overnight, really, where I 
was trying to think of a word to to write and I think it was like a college admission uh, essay that I was writing and I couldn't think of the word in Assyrian and I thought well I'll just ask my mom and then I paused and I said well you know one day hopefully far far from now she won't be here and I can't ask her and it's really just up to me and up to my friends and up to everyone you know that's that has been given the gift of the Assyrian language. And so at that point, I really had a change of heart and I started from around late high school through college to very intentionally only speak Assyrian in the house and with anyone who really could speak Assyrian with me. And at first it was kind of tough. At first it was a little bit like rusty. I knew, I mean, I always spoke Assyrian, but it it wasn't as smooth and conversational. Sure. And there were some words here and there that it were, might have pronounced funny or whatever, and people would snicker, but I would keep at it. And my parents were really supportive and really happy that I kind of came around. And over the last, I would say, six to eight years, I've become so comfortable and to the into the extent that I even write. I write poetry and stuff in our mother tongue without translating it. I write wow. it just instinctively in our language. That's beautiful, So honestly. Do you find yourself thinking, like your train of thought as you go about your day, do you find that to be in an Assyrian or does it go back and forth between Assyrian and English? Yeah. NPR has a really cool podcast called Code Switch that a lot of people have listened to. And one of the episodes, they talk about how bilingual people, depending on what they're talking about or what they're thinking about, will switch to thoughts in one language or another. And I think that kind of pertains to me. So if I'm at work, very rarely do I... Do I think in a screen? <laughs> but um, if I'm thinking about like idioms, for say, like for example, I think of them in Assyrian, and often will, they'll come out of my mouth like translated, botched in English. Yeah. The other day I was at work, and I found out something about a coworker that I didn't really like, and I turned to one of my other coworkers and I said, "She just fell from my eyes," and everyone was like, "What?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, she just fell from like an eye pillar." Yeah. And so sometimes, yeah, there's some funny. Like that level of respect isn't there with her. Right, right. So Renya, <laughs> Renya especially, Renya and Joe Danavi. Uh, have told me in the past that when they took when they took you to Gishra or, or when you were a part of that cohort, the Assyrians there loved you and they were in love with the way you spoke Assyrian because they love Iwanagasi there and I guess they equated it with that was my you know. nickname during that trip. They all would say, "Hey Evan, Evan Agassi, Tila Dula Tila, Lishanu Khalia," and they would all. They were very amused with my Assyrian for sure, because I definitely have a very strong Ormizhnaya dialect when yeah. I speak Assyrian. That is actually a great segue into the next question. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, you decided to go on Gishru to see parts of our ancestral homeland in Turabdin and in Gerbia, which mm-hmm. is also known as Northern Iraq. What was going through your mind when you decided to go? So you're right in that I went on the trip five years ago, but I decided I wanted to go six years ago, okay. <laughs> um, which was one of the first official years they were taking the, the group. I had listened to Natalie Babella give a presentation at state convention, and it really moved me. I felt like it was something that I really wanted to do, and it was at a time where I was just getting involved with um, being involved in our Umtanaya community here in the Bay Area. Um, and I felt like it was a natural next step. But it took a whole year of convincing my parents, <laughs> who had never been to Iraq. My, grand- my maternal grandmother was actually born in Baghdad hmm. because her family had left Urmi to Baghdad as refugees from the genocide. She was born in Baghdad and then they moved back to to Iran. But other than that random fact, none of my family had even been to Iraq. And it was kind of taboo. They were like, we, we ran away from that region of the world. Right. And like, why do you want to go? But it was in me and it, the, for a, my mom told me for um, one year, think about it. If you still want to go in a year, we'll talk. I think she thought that I wouldn't want to go in a year. 
I still did and I came up and I said, hey, mom and dad, like I applied, they're sponsoring me. Um, there's this awesome opportunity to go to Betnahrin. I guess I can only describe it as like a conscious thing. Like there was a calling that wouldn't give up that Narden, you need to go, you need to go. When I went in 2018, this was after many years of Susie Yonan, mm -hmm. Joe Danavi, and other peers who had gone were always coming back and telling me, you need to go, especially you. And for some reason, I just, whether it was work or personal circumstances, but I, I felt as though the year that you go is meant to be. Yeah, you know, absolutely. so maybe it wasn't meant, meant for you to go that year that you heard Natalie's talk, but it was meant for you to go the year after. But I want you to talk about what did you see there and your experience on the trip, especially, and, and I don't remember if you went before or after ISIS. Just, I went just before. So upon returning from my trip in 2014, it was just about two months before ISIS invaded the um, Nineveh plains. So it was just before. Of course, circumstances have unfortunately changed, but I remember when I first came back, I was like the youngest, I might still be, but I was at the time the youngest person who had gone on Gishu. And it was, um, we did a series of speaking engagements, five or six, to kind of let people know about um, what the conditions are of our people there and kind of just give a report back, similar as you and other participants have done this year. And I remember during all of those talks, the overwhelming feeling that was bubbling up was hope. I remember it was so hopeful. It was on the cusp of the um, Baghdad government passing the resolution to make the Nineveh Plains its own autonomous state, um, something that uh, within Iraq, but yeah. something amazing foundation for our people. And there were so many other things that were just so hopeful. And I remember going on these little speaking engagements and during the Q&A, people would always raise their hands and say, oh my goodness, like how poor are the people there? How needy are they? Like all of these kind of negative things, are they safe? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we get them out? All of these kind of reactions. And I remember my, my response to all of them was like, no, there are people there that have a life and they are settled and they don't want to leave. Extraneous situations excluded, but it's our job to advocate for them, to support them as best we can. Oh, again, there was so much hope there that the people that are there, that are Assyrians there had given to us at that time. Tell me about the energy of the people there. In, in Dashtat Nineveh, in Nuhadra, mm -hmm. in Erbil, in northern Iraq. So as you mentioned, we started in Turabdin in Turkey and then drove into northern Iraq. And I would say that the first four days in Turkey were um, very emotional, negatively. They were very, very um, hard because wherever we would go, they would show us empty villages and would say, these used to be Suraya, these used to be Assyrian villages. This monastery that you're at, you know, was just confiscated by the Turkish government. Everything was very, very negative and it almost looked as if like abandoned by Assyrians. We saw little, you know, bubbles here and there of our people there. Like there's one village where people have moved back from Germany and have rehabilitated one village in Turabdin yeah. of a couple, you know, handful of families. But altogether, the overwhelming feeling in Turabdin was kind of like the bad guys won. Mm. It was kind of like we are extinct in this part of yeah. our homeland. And we are a history. Like we are coming to witness like history. But when we got into Iraq, the first night was, um, I guess, New Year's Eve. It was right before all of the New Year's festivities for Khevnisen. And there was fireworks, dancing, thousands of Assyrians, young, old kids, such an energy, such a happiness, such a like a spirit of perseverance that I remember in the first night, your co-host Edessa Kuryakos was on my trip and we literally turned to each other and we like almost let out this big sigh of like, yeah, okay, cool. We're here, we yeah. are going. And it was wow. 
very celebratory. So as far as kind of the mood, when I was there, the mood in Iraq was just very, very celebratory and happy and um, joyous. I would describe it as everywhere we went, people were just very joyful about the new year. During your trip, you most likely made a visit to a few of the schools that are operated there in northern Iraq. What was your sense? What was your feeling walking into some of those schools and just sitting next to the students? So if like the slogan of my Gishru trip was hope, um, I would say that the Assyrian Aid Society schools were the mascot. They were what were pushing the hope through. They were just the lifeblood because they were full of all these students that were the most behaved, the most prim, proper, smart, intelligent little kids that I've ever seen. Not even little kids, all throughout up to high school. Um, and just seeing our language in that capacity where these students were studying biology, geometry, grammar, everything in our language from K through 12, and also juggling you know, the other languages that they are, you know, should learn. It was impressive, it was hopeful, it was encouraging. Truly like nothing I've ever seen before. It was mm. one of those moments where you looked around and you said, oh my gosh, we're in Assyria. Yeah. What specifically changed for you after the trip? So many things. I would say my top two takeaways from the trip perspective wise, because it is a very perspective shifting trip, like you said, was um, I think before the trip, number one, uh, before the trip, I had a very small like mindset or small like I had tunnel vision about our Assyrian community. I was born in diaspora in the Bay Area. When I was growing up, there was no more than five, 6,000 Assyrians in the whole Bay Area. Um, and I grew up in this small community. And to me, being Assyrian meant going to a church that speaks Assyrian on Sundays and then going to a, a New Year's party and maybe, you know, Nusayadir, one other holiday throughout the year. And your parents have a strong accent. Like, to me, that's what Assyrian meant. <laughs> and growing up, you know, that's, I thought, okay, we're a couple thousand people here in the Bay Area. Like, we're Assyrians. It's just kind of, I took it for granted. Coming back from the trip, it was so empowering because I was like, we're not just this random community thrown in California. We are around the world. We are in four countries. We have all of this big network. And we, I'm sure we come from different villages. We come from different countries. Our parents are from Turkey. They're from Iraq, Syria. We live in Germany and Sweden and Australia. But we are this like over, you know, global network of people that are all connected by all the shared things that creates a culture. Yeah. And that, I don't think I fully understood that perspective of how massive and powerful and how much potential our global network has. So that was one. And then the second takeaway that I think I had from the trip was that we have a country. It just is, you know, besieged and occupied right mm -hmm. now. But I think before, so many of us in diaspora, we love to give the spiel to our coworkers and, and to non-Assyrians. And the first thing we say is, well, we don't have a country. Assyrians don't have a country. We don't have a government. That's true. But we have a country and it belongs to all of us and going there and seeing it was very empowering and it's something that I think we all need to do and to, um, to own a little bit more. What really gives me even more hope is when I read, sometimes I'll read about Iraqi politicians, Iraqis abroad, Iraqis in exile that have left, that have been, have been neighbors with Assyrians, that have grew up with Assyrians and they're not Assyrians themselves. And a lot of them say, Iraq without Assyrians is not Iraq. That gives me hope because it's people within, within our society that really understand the mosaic, the fabric, 
what we bring to the table as an indigenous and and lately i've been using the term indigenous people not a minority mm. yeah i love that you wrote a piece about dot com as a home can you talk more about what inspired you to write that and what the central message of it was That was an op-ed that I contributed to the Assyrian Journal. Essentially, for anyone who's listening that might have not read it, the op-ed was essentially stating how the internet and the digital age kind of has created this faux digital homeland for diaspora Assyrians. Um, it's given us the platform to communicate ideas, to um, to find one another maybe romantically, to find each other ideologically, and all these things that. If we were in diaspora in the current state that we were in an era without the internet, um, I don't think we could have sustained ourselves in a lot of ways that we are. And so as an Assyrian growing up in diaspora who always wanted to be connected to so many Assyrians through Twitter, through Instagram, even before that, like in chat, literally in chat rooms, dating myself with that comment. But, <laughs> but in all those little ways, I've noticed that We have created these hubs and these online communities for each other where I feel very, very close to some Assyrians that I have never met in my life, Yeah, which I think is really exciting. And it was something that I, in the, in the op-ed, I look at it kind of throughout my lifetime. So early to late 90s, it was very restrictive. It was very like, you see a chat room or you know things like that. And then slowly but surely with social networks, we see my parents using Facebook and finding old groups for their youth groups and their neighborhoods and their old cities and finding, oh my gosh, my neighbor, my student from 30 years, I didn't know what country they ended up in. And now we're chatting. And then um, on Twitter, if you guys are on you know Assyrian Twitter, you can you know how funny and awesome everybody is and we all kind of know each other i've met up with people from twitter at conventions and things wow. like that so all of those all of those fed into the piece and if you haven't read it i encourage you to because i'm not um, articulating it as well as when i wrote it and tell us a little bit about the assyrian journal just to kind of set the the listeners up to what what it is yeah well i don't think joe snell has been on yet or no. he, okay well you guys should he promised me personally that okay. i would be able to interview him so well we're calling maybe. him out now on air <laughs> but yeah joe's put together an awesome online publication that that has really great writers one of my journalist friends rebecca pirayu is a writer on there it's just really high quality journalism that covers issues from around the world for Assyrians. going back to your dot-com piece your op-ed uh-huh What has your relationship been with the word home? Hmm, that's that's tough. Um, I think it's been, I guess, troubled. I like so many people that are born in diaspora, regardless of their you know community. But if you grow up with a strong culture in your family, you know none of us really are ever that home because we are always you know juggling the two parts of our identities, maybe more than two parts. Yeah. And I think that for a really long time, especially in adolescence, I really struggled. I was like, oh, I'm not. You know, I, I tried really hard for a really long time to be like so many of us do, as as American as possible, or like as you know mainstream as possible. And then I kind of switched, and for a while I was like, no, I'm completely Assyrian. I don't belong here at all. Um, and kind of did some soul searching on that side. And I think through traveling and growing up and speaking to others that have been through this process, I think I've come to a, a medium place where I've realized that at least for now, my home is with other um, others that understand my struggle. Sure. Um, my home is with people like you. It's in this room right now where all of us have gone through these things and I don't have to explain myself. Home can be in an idea, you know, home can be in things that are not physical. 
your relationship with the word home, did that change? Did this change after Gishru? I think so. I think I might have gone into Gishru thinking that I'll go there and have all these feelings of belonging, which I did. But I think that even going there and realizing I'm so different than the Assyrians here too, as much as I am the same, I'm still very different. Hmm. And I think that was almost very healthy for me because I realized that living in diaspora has has changed me and, and, and being born in diaspora. And it, it's nothing to be sad about or want to change. It's just my identity. Yeah. And I think that just like they have different things to contribute to our culture that I too have a different view of things that I can contribute to our culture. So it, it my sense of home definitely changed. I mentioned earlier that I felt like I didn't have a true country and I visited there and I felt that that we do. And that definitely empowered my Assyrian identity and made me confident in it. Mm-hmm. But I think I definitely had a change of perspective, of course. I definitely think that you've contributed to the Assyrians in diaspora. And we're going to get into that a little bit later, which I'm excited about. Are you hopeful or concerned for the future of Assyrians and why? I am very hopeful, definitely. Um, Concern is something we should all have, but I think overwhelmingly I am hopeful. Every millennial Assyrian that I meet over the years, through the years, whether it be the Assyrians that I was lucky to meet that were young in um, Atra or the ones that I continue to meet um, around the world in diaspora, they are all so different (laughs) than our elders. And with all due respect to our elders, there's just a sense of unity among young Assyrians and a sense of Mm. not focusing on what makes us different, of your village, my village, your country, my country, your religion, my religion. Sure, we also have our own problems, but overall, there is a sense of shared vision that I think is really refreshing. And I love talking to young Assyrians about it because... It is what keeps me going. And I think there is this um, this fine line that we learn to tow, and that's that to take advantage of all the opportunities that we're given that were denied to our parents and grandparents, mm-hmm. but then to not just take those opportunities to enrich ourselves, but also to take back with those commu- with those opportunities and to give back to our communities and to move our whole cause and our people forward. Absolutely. If you were stuck on an island, what... <laughs> What is one Assyrian thing you could not live without? Ooh. Uh, I would just say Rizza. I'm like a big <laughs> rice guy. <laughs> I'd have to bring some nice Assyrian basmati Rizza to me, with me on that island. So you're just having rice the whole time yeah. on that and island. And I would be, and people who know me know that I would be pretty happy with that. Nice. I like that. What are your plans for the future as it pertains to your career? I've been working for about two years now in the Bay Area, like I mentioned, in the world of government relations. I'm going to be going back to school because I like having no income, (laughs) (laughs) apparently. No, I'll be going back to school this fall. So I'll be pursuing my master's in international relations at the London School of Economics. What led you to the London School of Economics? Luck. (laughs) (laughs) I had kind of an international background in some other jobs and internships that I had done, both as a student and beyond. And those opportunities were really meaningful for me. I think I got a good grasp of working in the field that I am now, but wanted to get a new international perspective. Mm. I'd studied it abroad in an, inter- in an institution similar to LSE, so I knew that I would be a good match for it. I uh, was lucky enough to get into their program um, and hopefully use that degree to shift my career a little more internationally. We're going to switch gears now. Akadina, I want you to introduce yourself, who you are. Yeah. 
So I'm Akadina. I'm from San Jose, born and raised. Um, I went to the University of San Francisco, where I studied business entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm currently working at Plug and Play Tech Center, where um, I get to work with startups on business development, mentorships, and partnerships. How long have you been there? Eight months. Okay, so Narden and Akadina. When and how did both of you come up with the concept of Diaspora and Bloom? And for the listeners that are out there that have not were not able to visit the exhibit. Tell us a little bit about that and then go into how you came up with the concept. Sure, so Diaspora in Bloom was um, an exhibition that Akadina and I organized um, in June of this year, of 2019. And uh, it was a contemporary Syrian art show that uh, was a group show focusing on contemporary Syrian art. Yeah, and we came up with the idea about a year ago. We were, um, we go to a lot of galleries and museums in the area, and on one particular trip to the Cantor Museum on Stanford University's campus, um, we saw this exhibit, and we, um, you know, we walked away kind of not really resonating with the work, and like, it was a cultural exhibit, so we were just like, oh, okay, like, that was really interesting, but wouldn't it be really cool if we saw a Syrian contemporary art in a gallery talking about contemporary Assyrian issues, um, focusing on the present Assyrian experience. And so that's kind of where the idea was born, and we, um, that's what we did. We and where was, for the, for the listeners out there that weren't at the exhibit, where was the exhibit hosted? Downtown San Jose. Uh, our, our gallery, um, it's a gallery in like the Arts District of Downtown San Jose. Okay, so you, so you had a catalyst, and then tell me about your next steps. Was it reaching out to the artists? Was it you two sitting down and, and figuring out, okay, what are we going to feature in this exhibit, the themes? We have this note that we called the OG notes, <laughs> <laughs> and it was literally the first day we just wrote down like every idea we had that could possibly be the in brain the exhibit. Dump. Yeah, total brain dump. And then from there, we just picked what we would really want to see in the exhibit. And then from there, we... Yeah, yeah. so once we kind of had, we formulated our vision and clarified what we were looking for a little bit more, at that point, we got on our phones and went on Instagram. And we found a lot of these artists on Instagram. And so we started looking at hashtags like Assyrian, Assyrian art, um, people that we had seen um, in various spaces creating the type of art we wanted. We reached out to um, Atra Givekis, Esther Aliyah, and Rabo Bechmuel, and they were gracious enough to trust us without knowing us, and they really believed in the vision and what we were trying to do with the show. Mm-hmm. Were there, did you have any other advisors besides the two of you writing notes and OG, or besides <laughs> the two of you writing notes, was there anyone that was impactful or a sounding board we'd like to thank google (laughs) google was a huge help so helpful we also did a lot of focus groups with our Mm -hmm. friends we focus grouped the title so we sat everybody down we're like here are five titles what do you like Mm -hmm. and that's how we landed on diaspora and bloom and in general just any kind of connection to the art world through our friendship network that we had we really just tapped them for advice and pro tips Um, but largely this was us learning as we went. I, for one, went on a, I believe it was a Friday evening or so, I don't know what evening it was, one of the evenings. I love the, as, as you're walking in, to the right of the door was this, you had backgammon, a vinyl LP of Asha Betsergis, a Sliwa, <laughs> a rearview mirror with the Assyrian flag. And it really took me back to like, when I visited Chicago for the first time years ago and everyone had the Assyrian flag, hanging in their rearview mirror. And then I saw Juliana Jindu's VHS. I was like, 
who flowers who, of Assyria. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who was the who who was kind of behind that that modern or sort of diaspora? You know, this is what Assyrians were represented by in the eighties and nineties. Because it really took me back to my childhood. Um, sure. So throughout the exhibit um, the weave between the artists we really were intentional with trying to make it in an experiential gallery and to make visiting diaspora and bloom an experience um, one of the we did that was between the artworks me and Akadina had organized little pop-up I guess installations sure yeah so we had put little installations between the artworks and the last one as you were about to leave the gallery is what you're talking about which okay. is it was called objects of the Assyrian American experience mm. Yeah, I, I think that was the first thing that attracted me. And that, I know you told me naturally where to start, which yeah. is the opposite. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's, that's why you're supposed to end. <laughs> and the, kind of the flow, and once you get there, it is supposed to evoke those feelings of nostalgia that we all have, and seeing all those items put together, uh, defining our experience in, a, in mm. a humorous but very like aesthetic way. Rebel is one of my close friends, and, and to see other Assyrians like Atra and Esther that I had not heard of. And I, I follow Esther now. I'll try, I need to find, but I love Esther's art, you know, because I do connect with, especially her portraits. She shows these portraits where, and every, every Assyrian family has these portraits where the family's not smiling, they're sad. And I, I don't know if it's like the theme of photography to photography back then. And I was listening to an NPR bit that that might've been the theme of photography back then, where it was, everyone was just kind of like smug, I guess. But you really connect with that. Yeah, and I think I'd also add that when we were in doing the installation, um, and for those that might have not seen the show, maybe you've seen her post, her paintings online, but they are massive. They are like five by six, like massive. So we were hanging up these paintings, and I remember when we put up the portrait together, it's called History Seep Through the Cracks. And so we put it up, and we when we saw it, we just took a step back, and we were both struck by the fact that we've never seen such Assyrian faces right. painted in modern art and, mm -hmm. and something like as little as that kind of represented representation staring back at us and our history literally staring back at us in such a cool contemporary way. And I want the listeners to, to go out there and follow, her, follow Esther Lee and I'll include her information in the show notes as well. What I found most peculiar and I think I asked Paul Gabriel, one of my friends, this is that why are the, the, the bodies or the faces a different color other than like this human complexion color? You know, and that's something obviously I have to ask the artist, but definitely the, the exhibit invoked a lot of feelings. One of the most happiest photos that I saw there was a photo that was taken back in the 60s and the 70s in El Posh or Deshtetinwa where they're wearing traditional Syrian clothing. Yeah. And I want to tell me how you came about that photo and the permissions and the rights to, to display that photo. Sure. So the series, um, the series of photography that you're talking about um, was taken by a late photographer who was not Assyrian. So he's actually belated. But we found the series online on the Dominican Archive. People can go online and see like the lower res versions of them. Okay. But when we saw them, we were like, oh, my goodness, we have to have them. They just wove perfectly within the narrative because they were, you know, our you know, people in the 60s, like you said, wearing folklore clothes. But what really struck us about the series of, of photos was that they were all Assyrian women. Yeah. They were all, you know, strong women in the 60s with no men in any of the photos. And I think that's cool for many, for many reasons. It 
it touched us, but one of them was that it's kind of in an era in the 60s where everything was kind of male-centric. And the photographer turned the camera back and said, I'm going to focus on the women and the girls of this culture. And Assyrian women are really what are the lifeblood of our culture and what have preserved us, us, created new life, and instilled our traditions to keep it going. So it was a cool perspective of focusing on the Assyrian woman and, and elevating her. And so that was the reason why we chose them. The institute that owns the series now is located in the UK. So we actually reached out to the institute, um, Father Najib, who um, does a lot of work in northern Iraq, preserving old Assyrian manuscripts, was also part of the process. And they said, we love what you're trying to do and we would love to have your photos included. That's amazing. Tell us about the publicity that the exhibit received. Yeah, um, so we sent out a press release and we got a bit of good feedback. Um, We talked to KQED, which is NPR's largest member station. We got to speak to Mercury News. Uh, We were on Shamira Media, A&B, and also the Assyrian Journal. And the Mercury News being the San Jose Mercury News? Yes, the San Jose Mercury News. What were some of the challenges in setting up the exhibit? I think our learning process was a challenge. We we obviously have no background. We talked a little bit about our backgrounds, but we have no art experience. So it was learning what it takes to actually put on an exhibit. And then from there, putting that together. I'd also say um, kind of two of the more obvious ones would be resources. We had a list of things that we were not willing to compromise on for this exhibition. We wanted to be of the utmost level of professionalism, to attract folks that are of non-Assyrian background from throughout the Bay Area. And to do that, you know, you need a certain level of quality that we were uncompromisingly pursuing. And so resources were necessary. We're not an organization. We're just two individuals, which was great to see that we were able to successfully crowdfund this show. A lot of people that we've never even met believed in us and they donated between $5, you know, $20, $100, all online. Another challenge that we had was getting the word out. So we really believed in what we were doing, but you want people to come as many as possible. And thankfully, through outlets like KQED and Mercury News, we were able to attract literally over a thousand people through the run of this exhibition. What were some of those compromises? We didn't want to compromise on the gallery space. That was, I think, one of the most important pieces. We really wanted to see our vision come to life. And I think it was from, like, it was an experience that we wanted to see. And we thought maybe other people would want to see that. And we didn't want to compromise on that vision. Mm -hmm. Where do you two go from here? Is there a diaspora in Bloom 2.0? Is there another theme that you two want to explore? You've started now. You can't stop now. <laughs> uh, so we've, we've naturally gotten you know, that question a lot. Will you do it again? Will you do it again? And uh, of course, never say never. Anything is possible. Um, but I kind of wanted to delve into the title of the show and then tie it back into your answer, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, so Diaspora and Bloom, the way we got the title was the Assyrian idiom that says Nisan which means spring doesn't happen with just one flower. It means that if you want a movement to happen, you need a bunch of things, of people to on board. One person can't make a movement. And in the show, each artist represents a flower blooming, you know, and their talent, giving us their talent. But past the artist blooming, it's also each of us in Diaspora blooming with our own talents. We can each kind of use our own talents and professions to elevate our culture and move our people forward, just like Utra, Esther, and Rebel do with their art. So when people ask us, will we do it again? My answer so far has been to, to point to the show and say, if you were inspired by what you saw, know that this was to show what is possible. 
And it showed what is possible in the realm of Assyrian artists blooming. But you, Peter, and you, listener, and you, ex-professional, you can also bloom. And you can take our culture to the next level and push us into the 21st century, which was, you know, the central point of the exhibition, through your own talent. Yeah. And you might even have other artists emerging that want to share their work or propose some sort of idea Mm -hmm. to you two about, you know, the next exhibition. I noticed, so uh, a week or so ago, and we're now in in late July, I got, I was, I I guess you could say I was a patron of Diaspora and Bloom because I believed in it, but I received a thank you card. There's beautifully printed colors that said Hawitum Basime and flowers and this wonderful design. Tell me about where that was printed and who that, who printed that and who designed that. Sure. Um, So one thing that we were really intentional about was working and promoting Assyrian vendors. So, of course, we wanted to introduce Atra, Esther, and Rabel to the community. But beyond that, we wanted to support creative Assyrians, I guess I should say, in other fields. So florists, catering, all of those little things, we wanted to make sure that they were also Assyrian. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of those was an independent... Um, letterpress located here in the bay in oakland mm-hmm. um go oakland and she her name was anna Hengeldi, and anna Hengeldi also goes by anna kingsley um she lives in oakland and her her printing company is called pickpockety press okay um, you can find her on instagram online and she's really great she actually started following our page we came across her work through instagram and we reached out to her and said hey there's this project we're doing we would love to have custom work through you and she absolutely loved the vision, ended up coming to opening night and supporting wow. the show. Um, and she went through a series of de- designs inspired by the bloom theme. She, we ended up landing on one where she uses the Assyrian rosette, kind of makes it a little more modern and, and incorporates our language as well. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction from visitors within our community? Um, the reaction within our community was very, very positive. Like, I think young people really resonated with it. I think it really spoke to their experience. And I think that Assyrians um, of all ages were moved by be- feeling represented, which is something that we very rarely get to feel as Assyrians. Like you guys said, this resonates with me. These two curators get what I'm feeling, what I'm going through. First generation feel to it. While I was at the exhibition, I saw a few non-Assyrians there. Did you get any reaction from non-Assyrians? Yeah, we we got also really good feedback from non-Assyrians. I think one of the goal of the show had universal themes of cultural continuity and community. Yeah, those I think both of those like the universal themes in the show that Akadina points out resonates resonate with everybody from kind of any background. And beyond that, I think that especially in the Bay Area, we have a growing community, and non-Assyrians were excited to hear from us. And to hear from us in such a fresh way. They really were moved by the art. People were, non-Assyrians purchased art. They purchased wow. merchandise. They, I think they accounted for at least half of the visitors of the, of the show. Another thing is that they, they really liked, you know, in this political climate that we live in. I think that non-Assyrians really had a big takeaway of seeing what immigrant communities in particular that came here as refugees like our entire community did to see what they're creating what we're giving back to the community which is beautiful amazing art absolutely and correct me if i'm wrong but the exhibition was part of the san jose art walk or the first first friday art walk that's correct yes i believe we were stop 13 (laughs) you touch on this in the exhibit and i want to personally know what does it mean to you to grow up a Syrian American? How does that shape your perspective? 
I think to me, growing up a Syrian American and being an Assyrian American today is um, it's a balancing act. That hyphen that they put in between our identities is not an easy one, but it's also an important one that is very critical. And so I think to me, it's honoring and respecting both sides of that hyphen and realizing that the opportunity provided through the American side should be used to strengthen the Assyrian side because that is my history and that is what I owe my existence to and my identity to. Mm -hmm. I think the show is is nice because it validates that. It validates the sense of community. It validates a lot of trauma and sad things that have happened to our to our communities, but it also uplifts us. I think that people were leaving our exhibition, um, they were leaving Diaspora and Bloom uplifted. Even though the themes were heavy, people were leaving positive and ready to move forward. And so as an Assyrian American, I think it is my duty, and I hope others see it the same, to to give back to our communities and to take what we are exposed to in America and to to give it back and invest it back, for lack of a better word, into our Assyrian communities. In what ways did the exhibit elevate modern over ancient? This was one of the pieces that we really, really didn't want to compromise on and one of the driving factors of the whole show. We see a lot of ancient art. We see a lot of ancient art in galleries. We see them in you know, at the convention exhibit, which are all beautiful nods to our history, but at the same time don't really speak to our current situation. The goal of the exhibit was to really, again, elevate the modern over the ancient and to focus and spotlight contemporary Assyrian artists who are speaking to our current situation. And Peter, just like you mentioned, when you left the show, you were moved. I think part of that feeling and part of being moved was your reaction to art that was pushing your mindset and moving it to the future and kind of pushing our perspective to the future. And I think that's what why Rebel Esther and Atra's art is so phenomenal is because it does this just that. It forces you to think about being a Syrian and think about the 21st century at the same time, which is really, really important to propel our communities forward. And I asked you to earlier the feedback from the Assyrian community. Have you received feedback from artists that are interested in collaborating with you two on perhaps a 2.0 or 3.0? Yeah, definitely. We've had a lot of artists reach out. Again, we don't know what's happening next, but (laughs) we'll definitely be in contact. Narden, I'm going to focus the interview back on you now. It's evident you have an eye and a passion for art and how it represents us. So much so that in addition to the Diaspora and Bloom project, people may be surprised to know that you're the person behind the social media account at Mezopetreo. That's right, listeners. You heard it here first on a Syrian podcast. Could you walk us through how the idea came about and what Mesopotrail means to you personally? Yeah, well, that's true. You heard it here first. After three years of having the account, I've had a lot of messages and comments um, asking, you know, who's behind the page. But it's exciting to to put it out there on a Syrian podcast. That's you. That's me. Um, Mesopotrail, if um, you do not follow, I came up with the Instagram account three years ago, actually three years ago exactly. Um, And over the years, I've garnered about 10,000 followers on the page. And I've heard it described, you know, pretty accurately in a number of ways. I've heard it described as a Mesopotamian mood board, um, as the Assyrian counterculture, digital arts district of Assyria, really like cool kind of taglines. And then the actual page, I've described it myself um, as celebrating contemporary Assyrian art, correcting the misportrayal of the beautiful Mesopotamia, which is where the handle name Mm. idea came about. 
And then my current tagline on the page is for the modern Mesopotamian. Wow. So all of those ideas, you know, inspire how I edit and what I post on the page. What it means to me, I think it's just my creative Assyrian outlet. I'm, I like to think of myself as creative. And outside of projects, I was pretty quiet on the page while Diaspora and Bloom was going on because <laughs> didn't have too much time. But I think day to day, it's just a fun way for me to collect cool things that I see for myself and things I find interesting and hopefully followers do too. Where do you collect these things from? Because I've seen photos, whether it's artists, singers, Assyrians that I've never heard of. And I'm like, how does this individual now you, how do you, how do you procure? Uh, I'll just say that I never take off like my, my content curate hat. I was like, whenever I'm on my phone, um, doesn't matter. I'm not, I don't set out time to curate content for the page mm-hmm. I, whatever i'm looking at or reading about which is often assyrian related yeah. if i see something cool i'll screenshot it if i see some kind of you know montage posted just the other day i saw a cool video about hannibal Alchas. it was like about his life and i was like screenshotting as the powerpoint was going on because i was like these are awesome posts that i want to share so i guess just constantly i'm just sharing and saving and and all of that and mm. then i put it all in one file um, and slowly, I, I funnel it out. Yep. Have you been receiving content from users out there on Instagram? I have, yeah. I've gotten a lot of submissions from like artists and creatives themselves that will try to you know share things with my with the page and say, hey, I would love to be featured. And then more likely than not, a lot of followers um, will share things with me and tag things with the page and say, hey, this is totally Mesoportrayal's vibe. Yeah. I get that a lot. How do you choose what makes it to the page or to the Instagram? The gram. Right. Well, so most of the followers follow Mezzo Portrayal on Instagram, but we're also on Twitter and Facebook. So be generous with your follows. And can you repeat (laughs) the the handle again? Yeah, it's it's at Mezzo Portrayal. Um, M-E-S-O-P-O-R-T-R-A-Y-A-L. That's it. That's it. Um, (laughs) As far as how I kind of decide what makes it on the page... um, It's a little murky. I don't have like an exact criteria. It's usually just something that um, I think kind of fits into a few like perspectives and mindsets that I have. It came about originally also from following a lot of other Assyrian pages and a lot of respect to them. But I was just seeing a lot of um, kind of drab conservative content. And I don't mean conservative politically, but in that it had a conservative or narrow definition of what qualifies as Assyrian content. Like if something had Allah Asher stamped on it or was Jalit Kamala, they would just post, you know, that and the Assyrian flag and people, you know, would lose their minds and love it. But I didn't feel like that was good enough. Basically, in short, I didn't really want to have to choose between Assyrian content and good content and then aesthetic content. And I think I always had a picture in my head of what it meant to be. Assyrian, and I wanted all of those little images that I had seen that define what being a modern Assyrian meant to me reflected back in one feed and in one place. Mm-hmm. When I think about all of those things at once, when I see something that kind of fits into that mindset, I save it. What are the outcomes you've witnessed in having the page throughout the last three years? I think a lot, but for one of one of the most meaningful ones to me is seeing how the page has kind of become a forum and like a meeting place for a lot of like-minded Assyrians. You know, the, the page is pretty progressive, arts-focused, humorous, and all of those kind of tend to, to gather a certain type of Assyrian. 
And I've noticed that in the comment section or people reposting to their own stories and whatnot, that it's kind of created like this internet subculture for Assyrians where you know that, oh, do you follow Mezzo for Trail or you'll find someone in the comment section? It immediately is like that common ground of we get each other, and yeah. we, which I think was has been really fun to see how it's become that kind of forum for young Assyrians, this kind of secular online space. You know, what's interesting is you bring on this point of connection and... Joe Danabi, him and I actually became friends by way of Assyrian Voice Network. It was a forum where you would you would log into the forum and you would write, you would have discussions. And and Assyrian Voice Network would have gatherings, like they would get together in Chicago. The mm-hmm. users in Chicago or even Detroit would come together. Do you see like Mesoportrayal gatherings happening around the U.S.? Can we call it Mesoportrayal Meetup? <laughs> that outlet yeah. where they all all of these users come together and, and identify themselves but do you see that kind of taking it from instagram and from twitter and into, into real the physical life. into social interaction yeah i love that idea i think we should definitely coin mezzo portrayal meetup right now <laughs> <That'd be laughs> coming cool. to a city near you <laughs> i love that who's your favorite artist who's your favorite assyrian artist so my oh I believe I had to say it. <laughs> so my favorite artist has to be, uh, I have many, many favorites at the moment, but my all-time, all-time favorite that has always served as an inspiration to me has always been Hannibal Ochas um, for both his paintings and his poetry. And I think, I mean, for most of us are all familiar with his work and it doesn't really need, you know, me to sit here and explain why I love it so much. Yeah. Aside from his, you know, talent that's renowned and he's in the Met and all of, all of that. For me personally, I think why he was so inspirational is that across his work, he would kind of take these exceptional mainstream ideas that he was exposed to and he'd bring them back into the Assyrian and like Middle Eastern awareness. Sure. And so like, just for instance, he translated Hafez's poetry into the Assyrian language and would, rec- would record himself reading beautiful poetry that's known around the world. And he infused it into our language, preserving beautiful vocabulary, not only, but also these ideas of love and all of these things that Hafez touches on. And he brought it in and infused it into our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, other things that he does, he, he, all his series of portraits, the people that he chooses to paint, subjects like Farouk Farouk Frida Kahlo, Buddha, those were the subjects he chose to paint. Um, he didn't just paint another Malik Tashamiram in a Kaliska, but he decided to take these amazing thinkers from around the world and write Assyrian poetry over them and, and bring them into our consciousness. And I think that is so inspirational. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've come across Hannibal's work by way of Rebel, Rebel Bitshmul. He was the first one to introduce me to Hannibal. Amonul Bitionan recently featured in his album and sang Piyudit Libbi, and he talks about Shukhtakh <laughs> 
probably wrote that 60 years ago 70 years ago but to this day like I can identify with that sort of poem mm -hmm. and so I, I feel as though he really transcends and really sets himself apart from the the Assyrian art that we have been used to seeing and to modern Assyrian art where we can relate to as well three generations after absolutely yeah and universally he's universally loved like outside of our community oh too, yeah so. West I, I know he spent a considerable amount of time in America yeah we have listeners from all over the world. If you had one thing to say to them, what would it be? I think I'd have to say, don't compromise your modernity or your Assyrian identity. Embrace both and be better for it. Support, support, support your Assyrian artists. Well, Nardin and Akadina, thank you for being on this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. I had a lot of fun. This has been my favorite interview to date. So thank oh you too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Cheers. <laughs>